our kids uh, perform like this, it gives, us, it gives us some hope. It gives us some joy. It makes us go, wow, this is great. You know, look at this next generation. Look what's happening here. This is really exciting. Now, we know that that's not the case across the board. Anyone remember the Tide Pod Challenge from a few years ago? This started out as a joke where people were like, look at these Tide Pods, these packages. What? That's not the picture. Uh, look at these pictures of, uh, of little packets of, laundry, of, of dish detergent. Wouldn't those be uh, delicious to eat? And then all of a sudden, people started doing it. And you had these videos of teenagers eating Tide Pods and posting videos and then encouraging others to do the same. And then uh, a couple years after that, you had the Benadryl challenge and then the milk crate challenge and all of these just people doing really, really dumb, ridiculous things and encouraging others to do it. And I, I don't know about you, but, and, and it's, it's anecdotal, but I feel like it's, it's kind of symbolic of the decline of wisdom in our culture. You know what I mean? Like if we're eating dish detergent, maybe we've taken a wrong turn somewhere, you know? And I see this all over the place, this decline of wisdom. I mean, I, I see it in our addiction to things like Instagram and TikTok and, and Twitter, these, these platforms that keep us skimming along the surface like skipping stones, never able to go deep, right? Always seeming to decrease our attention span even, even further, where you just go from one soundbite to the next, one scrolling from one photo to the next, watching one dumb video to the next. I see it with uh, news reporters and journalists who have to offer their hot take the moment anything happens. In this age of the instantaneous, if you don't offer your opinion right away, you're going to be irrelevant, no matter how, how short-sighted or foolish that hot take ends up being. I see it in what is sometimes called cancel culture, which is this like relentless drive, it seems, to wipe out every major Western thinker, whether current or historical, except apparently for Karl Marx and anyone who's with him, even though Karl Marx said far more outrageously racist things than a lot of the people who are being canceled and yet has new statues being built in his honor. Anyways, that's a side note. We'll just leave that, we'll leave that to the side. I see it in, in our cultural amnesia that has us repeating the same mistakes of the relatively recent past over and over again. I see it in the way that we've taken ideals and truths that it seemed like everyone agreed on 15 minutes ago and now might, must be wiped off the face of the earth. I see it in the widespread biblical illiteracy in, in people and in, in culture, of course, but even Christians themselves and in just all of these ways, I see this lack of, of wisdom, this decline of wisdom. But it's easy to kind of point it out out there. It's probably a lot more important to recognize it in ourselves. To say, man, we, we come across so many situations where we need wisdom, right? Like if you're, uh, if you're a parent of a kid, and I know there's a lot of us here today, you're, you're constantly coming up against these situations where you go, what am I supposed to do here? What do you do about this stage of life? You come up against this with finances, especially with all the bad news out there today. What do I do about my finances, investing and retirement and all of that? How many of you have tricky relationships with family members? Three of you, okay. Well, you're, you're, <laughs> you're blessed. Um, how about with friends? Anyone have tricky relationships? Seriously, you guys are amazing people. You have your whole life together. I have tricky relationships where I, I know I have to have a hard conversation, but I don't know how to say something in a way that somebody's actually going to receive it. See, there are so many times in life where we go, I, I need wisdom, but I don't have enough of it. So let's talk about that today. Let's pray and then, and then dig into that. 
So Jesus, I thank you so much for our children, for our volunteers, for our staff. Lord, I thank you for this, this generation. Lord, as we're talking about wisdom today, we pray, Lord, for God-given wisdom, uh, Lord, to, to be developed and, and, and grown in the children and the teens and the young adults and, and all of us, Lord, that we would grow in wisdom, uh, Lord, that in, in, in uh, contrast to the world, Lord, that we would live lives that, that are deep, that are, that are rooted, that are founded in truth and what is solid. Lord, I pray that you would work in us today as we, as we delve into your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So here we are in Ecclesiastes 12. We're, we're, gonna be, we're right at the end of this passage. And in case you're wondering, hey, is this, is this the last sermon in this series on Ecclesiastes? Some of you would be like, this is great news. What a relief. It's kind of a bummer of a book. Uh, hate to break it to you, buddy. There's one more sermon. Next week, Ashley's going to be preaching on Ecclesiastes 5. But this is the last sermon I'm going to be preaching on Ecclesiastes. So that's why we're, we're at the end, wrapping it up before diving back in next week. Anyways, Ecclesiastes 12, starting in verse 9. It says, Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words, and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. Their collected sayings are like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Can I get an amen from students here? Now, there you go. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Now, in case you, you didn't quite catch it, this section, these verses are written by an editor. So the bulk of Ecclesiastes is a compilation of the sayings of, of someone in Hebrew called Kohelet. In English, it's the teacher. But here at the end of the book, an editor kind of comes in and says, look, I brought these things together. These are wise words. You should listen to them. You know, when you're reading a book, sometimes you get a foreword at the very beginning of the book. Have you read a book like that? I don't know. People don't read books anymore. But there's a thing called a foreword. And it's where another author says, hey, this person who's writing this book is like the most incredible, genius human who's ever lived, and this book is single-handedly going to change the course of history, and so you should read it, uh, or something like that. And that's a little bit like what the author uh, or the editor of Ecclesiastes does here, except at the end, he says, look, these words are wise. They're worthy of, of being listened to. They're worthy of living your life in according to these words. They're wise. And what he says here about these wise words is applicable across the board. This is true about wisdom as a whole. So let's look at it. He says that the words of the wise, wisdom words, are upright and true. They're upright and true. Meaning that wisdom resonates with reality. Wisdom represents things as they really are. That's what truth is, right? Truth represents things as they really are. And you have, you've probably experienced the opposite of this, when somebody says something that's totally dissonant with reality. I, I, I love sports. I like, I, I like watching uh, sports clips, including clips of bad sports announcing. And one of my favorites, it's a, it's a college football game, and it's a, ma it's a major U.S. network. And anyways, it's a college football game, and there's a, a kicker kicking a field goal. 
and he kicks it and goes way, way right. It's not even close. Like, it's so far off the mark. But as he does that, the commentator says, and the ball goes off the crossbar and in. What a great kick by Fricano. Three points for Western Michigan. Oh, what a great kick. And you're watching this, you're like, like that's not even close to what happened. Like it is so bizarre because we watched one thing and this guy is describing something entirely different. It's so dissonant from reality. Now on the other hand, you know how sometimes if you're familiar with church and, uh, and, and you know, gatherings of Christians, sometimes you'll have people during a prayer or during a sermon kind of go, yes, like amen, oh, mm, yes, absolutely. You know, kind of these holy sounds of agreement. And some of you might be sitting there and thinking, you know, be quiet, you unconstrained charismatic maniac. <laughs> Don't you know that church is a place to be seen and not heard? Don't you know you're supposed to sit there passively and quietly? Well, let me disabuse you of that notion. <laughs> Because if you hear truth, you should affirm it. It's good to affirm it. There you go. It's good to do that. And when people do make those holy sounds of agreement, it's not because everything else that the person has said is false. It's that something that they have said or a request they've made in prayer especially hits home. It especially resonates. It especially strikes someone as true. That's what we want. That's what we're looking for. That's how things really are. And this is what the book of Ecclesiastes is, is like. This is what the book of Ecclesiastes does. Remember the first week we preached on this, I said that, that some people have described Ecclesiastes as the most contemporary book in the Bible. Because it, it's so, it so bluntly describes the world as we find it. The world under the sun, the world in bondage to sin and to death, the world apart from God's redemption. Ecclesiastes names this reality, says this is how things are. And it's true. Apart from God's redemption, this is how it is. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom names reality as it is. The, uh, the editor also says that wisdom words are like goads. Do you know what a goad is? It's like a law, not a goat, not a bah, like a goad. Uh, it's a long, pointy stick that uh, the people would use to provoke animals to start moving or to change direction. You know how they would do that? Kids, you know how they would do that? How? Poke them in the butt. That's right. Prick them in the butt. That, that, gets, that gets animals moving. The editor says this is, what, this is what wisdom is like. Wisdom is like, it's like a goad. Now, um... We, uh, we've, we've called this series Rugged Wisdom. Rugged because wisdom is not always easy and smooth. Wisdom can often be difficult and challenging terrain. Wisdom can often be words that we wouldn't choose to hear if we had a choice. And a lot of people actually do that. They choose not to hear any difficult or challenging words. So Paul writes to Timothy in the New Testament. He names this reality. He says, for the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. Do you see that happening? See that happening in, in our world where people just surround themselves with people who say already what they believe? It's this echo chamber where we only read the news that we already agree with. You see that happening in the church 
where people kind of just want the watered-down stuff. They don't want to hear anything that's really challenging. And the thing is, we do this not even just by only listening to easy things. We also do this by taking difficult words and twisting them and distorting them so that they are comfortable to us. So God says to the prophet Ezekiel, I love this passage, My people come to you, as they usually do, and sit before you to hear your words, but they don't put them into practice. Their mouths speak of love, but their hearts are greedy for unjust gain. Indeed, to them you are nothing more than one who sings love songs with a beautiful voice and plays an instrument well. For they hear your words, but do not put them into practice." And I can resonate with this as a preacher, although I don't think I've ever had anybody compare my speaking to beautiful love songs with a wonderful voice. <laughs> I don't think anybody's ever described my singing that way for, the, for that matter either. But I, I can resonate with this whole, you know, people come up to you, they go, wow, thank you so much, Pastor. What a great sermon. That was so wonderful. The jokes were okay today. Um, but, but they walk away and nothing changes, right? Nothing's different. And I see this in my own life too, that I can pay lip service to truth and to wisdom, but I walk away and I kind of figure out some way of sidelining this kind of inconvenient, difficult, challenging truth and, and wisdom. And the thing about this obsession we have with comfort is that it doesn't, it, it, it means that we don't change, nothing changes, there's no transformation. C.S. Lewis, he, uh, he said, if you look for truth, you may find comfort in the end. But if you look for comfort, you will not get either comfort or truth. Only soft soap, which is like the worst thing, right? When a bar of soap has become soft. Only soft soap and wishful thinking to begin and in the end despair. If comfort is your whole goal and orientation, all you get in the end is despair. Because we are creatures of habit. And, uh, and our habits, as sinful human beings, often lead in the direction of death. And so we, 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 we get stuck, we do the same thing over and over and over again, and it just leads to despair, it leads to death. And, and so we need, we need goads <laughs> in our lives. This is why you shouldn't be surprised if the Bible says things that you find difficult. You shouldn't be surprised if a preacher preaches the Bible and will sometimes say some, some things that you'd rather not hear. You're like, I don't know about that. Shouldn't surprise you. You should discern it. Don't take it all, just whatever. Discern it, but don't be surprised if sometimes the Bible and, and, and biblical truth is, is difficult and is uncomfortable. And sometimes we need that. We need that prick in the butt. We need those wisdom words that actually get us moving in a different direction. The editor also says that, the, that wisdom words are like firmly embedded nails. Now, when I first read this, I thought that what this was describing, because uh, I guess I'm coming from the goads thing, and then I'm coming to the nails, and I had this image in my mind of, like, you know, I don't watch horror movies, but I think there's, like, you know, like a, a coffin, like, lined with nails, and it's, like, this torture thing. And I was like, man, this is, like, really grisly and morbid. This is what I had in my mind. And this is why it's good to read uh, to delve into people who have actually studied this and, and have wisdom, because it turns out that's not at all what this is about. <laughs> that, it's, uh, that it has to do most likely with tent pegs, uh, which is a whole, makes a whole lot more sense than the whole torture chamber thing. So firmly embedded nails as in pegs that hold a tent or a canopy down. 
And this, this is fresh to me because of something that happened at Summerfest last, uh, last week. Summerfest, this magical night of barbecue and jazz music that some of you were at. Uh, we were setting up earlier in the day, and we had borrowed one of those uh, 10 by 10 foot canopies. And we set it up, and, and to be fair, the people who lent it to us also were there. And no one thought about weighing, them, weighing this tent down, actually uh, anchoring it. And so uh, we, we set, we're setting things up, and all of a sudden, it's a very calm day, but suddenly a gust of wind blows through the parking lot. And two things met their demise in that moment. One was the much maligned ping pong table uh, that, that the Cove youth has used. It was poorly constructed from the very beginning, not because of the people who constructed it, but because of Canadian Tire. Anyways, that's another story. <laughs> and um, anyways, it's standing there up, right? The wind comes. Blows the thing over, smashes into the pavement. It's, it's life is mercifully over. That's it for the ping pong table. But as we're dealing with that, I hear somebody yell out, Ah, the canopy flew over the hedge! And I look, and where the canopy was, it is no longer. And I'm thinking to myself, it has blown into the neighbor's yard and we're all going to die. That, was what, <laughs> that is what I was thinking. Now, we wouldn't have died, but that would not have been the most enjoyable experience of anyone's lives to have that have happened. Thankfully, it didn't go into a neighbor's yard. It stayed on our property, but it got mangled in those trees. And, and so it was quite the, quite the project to, to kind of get it out. It's like a whatever, 60 degree slope back there, but we got it out. But it was mangled. It was twisted. Some pieces were snapped. I don't know. Rob, was it salvageable in the end? You resurrected it. Well, that's, that's good news. That's great news. <laughs> All right. Well, I thought it was dead. But anyways. I, I think that's a bit how life is, right? A lot of people have figured out how to kind of live life day to day. When it's calm, when everything is okay, they've kind of figured out this is, this is the tent of their life and they can kind of make, make do. But it's when the gusts, uh, when the winds of life blow through that you find out what the foundations really are. And for a lot of people, if their lives aren't anchored by wisdom, as soon as the gusts come, the tent goes flying gets mangled, gets snapped, gets caught up in the, in the trees, right? Wisdom is what weighs the canopy of our lives down so that it's able to sustain the storms of life. And the longer I go in my life, and if you were with us last week, you'll know that according to some, I've solidly entered my middle age years. Um, as I longer I go, the more I realize that, that there are certain worldviews, there are certain thoughts, there are certain ways of thinking and living that enable me to endure hardship and trials, and there are others that really don't. And so you want to, you want to, you need wisdom, you need wisdom to anchor your life, to ground it, to root it in what is true, so that when the trial comes, the canopy remains. Fourth, the editor says that wisdom words are sufficient. He advises his, his, uh, his reader, who he calls his son, not to go beyond these words. And this is so important in an age where there are so many voices, right? There's so much noise out there, especially since the advent of blogs and YouTube that 15, 20 years ago, it's like everybody now has a voice. Everybody can, can speak. And there are some good things about that, right? If, 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 let's say, a government authority says something that's blatantly not true, there are a lot of people to call them on it. There are fact checkers everywhere. But it also, it also means that this world is very, very confusing and fragment, fragmented. 
Like if, if everybody has a voice, who do you, how do you know who's telling the truth? When the million news organizations out there telling a different story, who are you supposed to be able to trust? And this is why I think it's so important when it comes to wisdom to be rooted in what has been tried and tested and true. To, to, to be aware of what has served people well who have lived well in ages past. To, to consider especially the wisdom of what has come before us. And as a follower of Jesus, of course, I believe that's first and foremost true about the Word of God, about the Bible, His inspired Word. You know, we, we live again in this, in this time where, where culture, culture seems to shift constantly. Truth is different every day. It seems that the, the widely accepted dogmas of our day are believed without a whole lot of consideration or, or deep, deep thought given to it. And in contrast to that, the Bible is this, this bedrock of, of wisdom and truth. This is what God speaks to the prophet Isaiah. These are, these are words I've quoted often, but they're so important. He says, all people are like grass, and all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall, but the word of our God endures forever. Now that, sure, yeah, we can clap to that, absolutely. That doesn't mean that you can't listen to anyone in our world today, or that there aren't contemporary voices that are, aren't worthy of our consideration, but you should measure all of that wisdom you hear against the Word of God, which is sufficient for right living in this world. And, and that gets at this kind of last element of wisdom I want to look at right here in this, in this section. Um, verse, verse 12b, I, I, I quoted this before, of making many books there is no end and much study wearies the body. And again, that's, that's true, isn't it? If you're a student, you're going to resonate with that. And there are a lot of books. Anyone want to take a guess as to how many books are, have, have been published in the history of the world? How many books are out there? Anyone want to take a guess? A trillion. See, the, anyone else? 20 billion. Okay, all right, we got a trillion, we got 20 billion, yeah. 15, which? Million or Billion. Billion. We got billions. All right, one more. One million. Okay, Sadie's actually the closest. So here's, here's the thing. This is the thing about asking a question like that is you all figure, well, there must be so many books, and so you dramatically overshoot the actual number, and it, it makes it much less impressive. This, I knew this would happen. I knew it. You'd all say crazy numbers that aren't true. It's hard to make a book, guys, okay? <laughs> Trillions of books. What in the world? <laughs> Have you written a book? No? Anyways. So Google actually did a big analysis in 2010. They had all this criteria. They actually did it. And they found that the actual number was 130 million books. It was, it was actually, it was like 129 million. Like they had a very precise number. They said, this is how many books there have been. Uh, and some people have estimated that in the last 12 years, because of how easy it is now to self-publish, uh, that maybe another 40 million has been added to that. So maybe 170 million. Now here's an interesting little fact for you. The fastest reader in the world, Guinness World Record holder, is a guy named Howard Berg. And Howard Berg can read, I think it is 25,000 words a minute uh, and retain a 90% comprehension rate. So this is why he has the Guinness World Record. That means a page of text, he reads it and comprehends it in three seconds. 1,000, 2,000, 3,000, he's got it. That's it. 
he has read something like 30,000 books in his life. That's incredible, right? 30,000 books. But do you know what that means? That means that the fastest reader in the world, almost incomprehensibly fast, has read something like 0.018% of the books in the world. And he's falling behind, I think. I think he's, I think he's behind the pace now. In other words, the, po- the point here is that wisdom is not knowing everything. Wisdom is not, is not reading and spending your whole life in a library. Wisdom is not identical with, with study. It's not identical with, with intellect. It's not identical with education. There's some overlap for sure. But wisdom in the Old Testament functions primarily practically. Wisdom is functional. Wisdom has to do with life. It has to do with relationships. See, it's good to know things. God wants you to know things, but God wants you to live in a certain way. And that's what wisdom does. Wisdom enables you to live in a certain way. It's not just head knowledge. It's practical knowledge worked out in how you live on a day-to-day basis. So to kind of wrap, to to sum up that part of it, we've said that wisdom words are, um, that they are upright and true, that they resonate with reality. They are like goads. They can be uncomfortable and challenging. They are like firmly embedded nails. They're an anchor for life that enables us to endure storms. They are sufficient, where wisdom is what you measure other things against, especially the wisdom of God. And uh, that, what's this, this last point again? That it is practical, that it is functional. That's, that's what wisdom is. It enables us to kind of recognize it when we see it. But it still leaves this big question. How do you get wisdom? How do you actually become wise? And the Bible actually has a pretty straightforward answer to that. We read it in verse 13. Now all has been heard. Remember, Ecclesiastes is a book about wisdom. All has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's, that's it right there. It's no coincidence that we read that in connection with, with wisdom that we read right away is about fearing God because the Bible affirms again and again and again that wisdom comes from God, that he is the source of wisdom. That's the implication in verse 11 where we read that these words are given by one shepherd. That, that phrase, one shepherd, is used other times in the Old Testament to describe God. Of course, you probably know Psalm 23, a fairly well-known psalm. The Lord is my shepherd shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What do shepherds do? Shepherds protect their sheep. Shepherds ensure that their sheep have something to eat, that they're nourished. That's what wisdom does. Wisdom protects. Wisdom nourishes. And God wants to give us this wisdom. He's our shepherd. He wants to protect us. He wants to feed us. And so he wants to give us wisdom. James 1 verse 5 says, If any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God, who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. God is the source of wisdom. And, and not just in, in terms of, of, how, or of, of something that he can distribute to other people. Like if uh, I, I could say that I am the source of seaweed for my kids— because I can take a package of seaweed and I can give it to them. And for some strange un- un- reason that I don't understand, they'll actually eat it. Uh, eat just plain seaweed. Now, I'm not going to ingest that seaweed myself. It's not going to be part of who I am. It's not something that's fundamental to me that I'm giving, right? It's like, I don't really like this, but here you go. You can have some seaweed. That's not how it is with God and, and wisdom. Wisdom is something that is inherent to who he is. He's the source 
in the sense that he is wise. Romans 11, Paul praises God, says, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Wisdom is part of who he is. He is wise. He's the originator of wisdom. He's the determiner of wisdom. He's the embodiment of wisdom. He's the, he is the, um, he's the source. He's the origin of wisdom. He is wisdom. That's who God is. And so if you want wisdom, you've got to go back to the source. And this is true in all kinds of realms of life, right? If you want something, you should probably go to the source, to the root of it. I grew up, pastor's son, in a church, hearing Bible stories all my life. But when I was 20 years old, and I got to go to Israel, and I got to actually take a boat across the Sea of Galilee, and I got to actually spend a night in the Judean wilderness, those stories hit me in a whole different way. Because I was there. I was at the source of these stories. For those of you who are in school, especially university, you know it's, it's one thing to read what 20 other people have said about some famous, well-known thinker, right? I can read what 20 people have said about St. Augustine, but to actually read Augustine, to actually go to the source, gives me a far greater understanding of this person that I'm studying. If you want wisdom, go to the source. But God isn't just the source of wisdom. He's also the means of wisdom. He's how you get wisdom. Again, that's the idea here. Fear God. Fear the Lord. That's how you get wisdom. That's what Proverbs says really clearly and directly. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. How do you get wisdom? You fear the Lord. Now this fear is not that irrational fear that some people have when they see a small, non-poisonous spider crawling around. And it's not the anxiety-inducing fear that we experience. Maybe when we're up in front of people speaking or, or doing something, I think these kids, they were, they were amazing, right? This is the incredible thing, is that some of us are like, as adults, I am never getting on that stage. But, uh, but because we have this fear, right? This anxiety-inducing kind of uh, emotion. It's, it's not like that. The fear that's being talked about here is the kind of awesome fear you experience when you encounter a force far greater than yourself. When you see, when you're, you're at a, a, pl like a place, a beach, where there's actual waves, not like Vancouver waves, which are like, you know, that high, but like big, mighty waves crashing down on the, on the shore. It, it's like the fear you might experience, the awesomeness when you drive through the Rocky Mountains and you see these majestic peaks, or, or when you're in a thunderstorm, like growing up in Manitoba, we had these thunderstorms where there was thunder and lightning and hail and howling winds, and once in a while a tornado. I mean, that, that kind of induces this like awe and this, this reverence and this respect. Now, God is, is, is the maker of all of those things. We, we might have that fear uh, in terms of awe and reverence of some things in creation, but we don't worship those things. The fear and the reverence and awe of God is so much greater because it actually um, amounts to worship. We, we worship him. Wisdom starts with, is, is, is gained by worshiping God. Now I'm going to come back to this to, to kind of close, but I want to finish the thought 
in Ecclesiastes first. I want to kind of develop that through, and then we'll come back to this. Uh, Ecclesiastes says, fear God and keep his commandments. We talked about this last week. Obedience is a means of enjoying life. It's how God created us to live. When we fear him, when we respect him, when we revere him, we will inevitably obey him. We want to do what he says. And Ecclesiastes says we should do this for two reasons. One is because it's our duty. It's what we were made for. We were created in God's image, according to Genesis 1. And so we reflect his image. We show the world what he is like by obeying him. And then, and then second, we, uh, we obey him because of the inevitability of judgment, the reality of judgment. And if you're a parent, again, you've used this tactic with your kids, right? If you do this, then this is the negative consequence that will happen. There will be judgment in this house, is what I say in my home. No, not really. But, uh, but you, you know, this is what you do. And this is why some people don't speed. Now, apparently that's not very effective in, uh, in greater Vancouver, where everybody goes 20 over the limit. And even then people pass you. But that's the idea, right? That if you speed, then there's a consequence. And you get, you get a ticket. So you obey out of respect for, uh, for, for, the, for authority, for what the consequence might be. So all of that is kind of wrapped up here in, in fearing the Lord. But I, I really want to... I want to soak in that here just to, to, to conclude, to end here. Because that worshipful fear of the Lord is the root of wisdom and it's the reason for obedience and all of that. See, in Western culture, we tend to have a very domesticated view of God, don't we? Uh, we see this in our culture as a whole. We see this in the way that so many people feel free to use God's name and Jesus' name in, uh, as, as, a, as a swear word, as a curse word, as an exclamation in movies and shows and everyday conversations. Even people who believe in God or some kind of God feel free to rebuke him, complain about him, uh, to seemingly believe that they could do a better job than him if they were given the chance. Apparently they haven't seen Bruce Almighty, but, but they kind of think that, like, I could do a better job than this guy. What's, what's going on here? And you see it in church too, right? We, we kind of, um, we treat God somewhat trivially. See him as uh, a buddy. We see him as uh, kind of a divine wish-dispensing genie, as an ATM of some sort, as a good luck pal, as somebody who's just kind of there like a kind old grandfather to pat us on the shoulder. That's a little, little bit off from how the Israelites experience God. Let's say at, at Mount Sinai. Imagine the Israelites at Mount Sinai. They had experienced this, this uh, deliverance from slavery in Egypt. They had experienced the love and the grace of God, but it was, a, it was a fearsome deliverance. It was a fearsome love. I mean, God struck the Israelites, or sorry, the Egyptians, not the Israelites, but the Egyptians with plagues. He split a sea right in front of them. Can you imagine two walls of water just being held together by God's power as you walk through the middle of it, the fear and the reverence you would experience there. And then here they are at Mount Sinai, and Moses, your leader, is meeting with God on the summit of the mountain, and there's thunder, and there's lightning, and you're told that if you even touch the mountain, you will die because of the holiness of God. You think about God as the maker, creator of the heavens and the earth. You know those incredible images we've seen from the James Webb Space Telescope? Have you seen those? This wild, vast universe. God made the universe. He's not like us. He is holy. He is awesome. He's more powerful than anything you've ever imagined, anything you've ever come across. 
And this isn't just an Old Testament thing. It's not like we came to the New Testament and God is no longer holy or deserving of worship. The author of Hebrews says, let us be thankful and so worship God acceptably with reverence and awe for our God is a consuming fire. You know, and we see this with Jesus. Again, we we think of Jesus primarily as our buddy and our pal, and I'll get to that later on. The kids weren't wrong to sing that song. But he demands reverence and awe. In the Gospels, we see Jesus telling the wind and the waves what to do, and they obey him. Creation does what he says, and the disciples are in the boat, and they are so filled with wonder. They go, who is this? In the Gospels, you see Jesus sending demons fleeing with the word of his mouth. In the Gospels, you see Jesus uh, enabling the blind to see and the paralyzed to walk and the leprous to be cleansed. You see Jesus calling dead people out of the grave, saying their name, and they come back to life. You see Jesus walking on water. You see him feeding thousands with a few loaves of bread and a couple of fish. You see him doing some pretty incredible things. And then you see him at the cross. You see him bearing the weight of the sin of the world on him. And as he does, you see the skies grow dark. And the temple, the curtain in the temple, torn in two. And then three days later, you see Jesus conquering death, overcoming the grave, coming out of it on the other side. And then you see him ascending to his Father, God, and being enthroned as Lord over all of heaven and earth. See, God does love you. And in Christ, through faith in him, you are adopted as his child. You are welcomed into relationship with him. You are filled with his Holy Spirit. That's all true. Jesus says to his disciples, you are now my friends. But don't take this lightly. Don't don't think that this is trivial. What's so incredible is that we are welcomed into relationship with him who is so awesome, so holy, so other than us, the first and the, be- the first and the last, the beginning and the end, Alpha and the Omega, from everlasting to everlasting, almighty creator of the universe. And this is where wisdom comes from, is knowing him in this way. And this is what I'm learning in my life. This is one of those tent pegs that I'm discovering is really, really solid, is that When I feel uncertain, when I feel anxious, when I am consumed with issues in my own life and issues in the world, that counterintuitively what I need to do is take my eyes off myself and off the world and worship God with reverence and awe. I am learning that habitually, consciously worshiping God is how I get wisdom. Wisdom is worshiping. Worship is wisdom. And so if you want wisdom, worship. If you're looking for wisdom as a parent, start with worship. If you're looking for wisdom in your finances in this world right now, start with worship. If you're looking for wisdom 
in difficult relationships with family members who none of you have, <laughs> then begin with, with, with worship. If you're looking for wisdom in relationships with friends, worship God. If you're looking for wisdom in how to understand this world and all that's going on in it, start with worship. If you want wisdom, what should you do? Worship. You should worship. Let us be a people of worship who make this the habit of our lives. Because if we do that, then we will be people of wisdom. And we will reflect God's character to the world. And people will see there's something different about these people. There's wisdom there. And it comes from worship. <laughs> Let's pray. Call these guys up to lead us in a final song. God, you are so holy. You are so, so much greater than we could ever comprehend. You are the maker of the heavens and the earth from everlasting to everlasting. God, when you came in the flesh, we saw you do things that nobody could do. We saw you calling dead people out of the grave. We saw you send sickness and demons fleeing at your voice. And Jesus, we saw you overcome death. We saw you conquer the grave. Lord, you are so great. You alone are worthy of our worship. Why do we, why do we waste our lives being preoccupied with so many lesser things when you are king over the universe? And God, in the midst of all of that, you have... You have invited us into relationship with you. You, the holy transcendent God, have come near to us. You have forgiven us our sins. You have washed us clean. You have called us holy and sanctified because of the mighty work of Jesus at the cross. And so you invite us to draw near to you. This is incredible. And so, Lord, my prayer is that we would not take this for granted. My prayer is that you would... You would um, Speak to us in a fresh way today, Lord, the wonder of the gospel. And then I pray, Lord, that we would, that our hearts would be consumed with a love and an awe for you, that we would just find so much pleasure and joy in worshiping you. Lord, that we would be people of worship and therefore people of wisdom. That in a world where there's so much confusion and there's so much fragmentation and there's so much just running around and shifting and changing Lord that we would be solid in your truth that we would be deeply rooted in who you are and what you have done for us and that this, this wisdom that is from you would shine through us and be a light to the world in Jesus name amen thanks for joining us at the bridge church in this way if God has spoken to you through his word, or if you're wanting to reach out to pray, or just wanting to know more about our church, access our website. There, you can connect with us and also have access to other contents. We are a church that lives to know Jesus Christ personally and to make him known. We believe he is the hope of the world and wants to give you hope as well. We believe the best news ever has come in and through him. May you know him more and make him known today. We'd love to hear from you.